If you have your Bibles, please open your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Let me read our sermon text this morning. This is a book written to, remember, spiritual exiles, dispersed, persecuted. We're going to pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray before we dig into the word. Father, we are grateful to be here worshiping you. Opening your scriptures to to be met by you and to be challenged and, and conformed to Christ. Lord, we ask that your spirit would do a good work in each of us this morning as we come to your word. Lord, would you speak? Would you change hearts? Would you encourage? Lord, as I stand here, I know I have a lot of things on my mind. I'm, I'm sure that's true of everyone else as well. Would you give us focus? that we might get all that you mean for us out of your word this morning. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you have seen the little signs on the side of certain roads around this area. They're, they're usually simple little yellow signs with black font that just say, Jesus is coming. Right? You've seen those driving around, Jesus is coming. In fact, yesterday as I was driving around, I saw one of those, and, and to be honest, I, I see them often. I don't think about it very much, and I probably wouldn't have thought it very much except that I'm preaching this passage this morning, so it was already on my mind. I'm guessing that most people, like me, just usually keep driving without giving that sign much thought. Our, our minds are on things instead, things of the world, not always bad things, just, just things. We've got work and school and raising our kids and paying our mortgages and making it to the weekend. We've got the Super Bowl, social media. All of these things are on our minds. So, so when we see Jesus is coming, we probably don't stop and give it much of a second thought. We've got more serious things these days. Russia and Ukraine, the pandemic, inflation. There's a lot of things that demand our attention on a daily basis. And there's a lot of inertia to, to keep our focus right in front of us on things that are good and bad and ugly on the horizontal level. But there are things beyond the earthly, beyond the immediate, beyond the horizontal that, that should grip our hearts. And when something interrupts that immediate horizontal focus, a reminder in whatever form that, that says, Jesus is coming. Do we give that reminder about heavenly, eternal things much thought, or do we just keep on trucking through life, mostly going away unchanged? So, brothers and sisters, it's not just about the little signs on the side of the road, but rather the fact that remembering that our time in this age is short and that the Lord will soon return should draw us 
to ultimate realities, to reshape our priorities along biblical lines. And so this morning we're looking at the passage I just read in 1 Peter 4, which functions as a much-needed reminder of the return of Christ and some of its implications. And so as we look at that passage, here's the main point I'm going to be driving towards this morning, kind of the theme of the passage. Because the end is near, we must soberly live as a countercultural community in Christ or for God's glory. Because the end is near, we must soberly live as a countercultural community for God's glory. This is a reminder, this passage, from the Apostle Peter that shouldn't just be quickly driven past, move on to other things. It's a reminder that invites us to slow down, take it to heart, and see that these truths should make an actual difference in our lives. Peter wants us to focus on living in the light of the end of all things, of, of the return of Christ. And so as we work toward that theme of the, the passage, I'm going to approach the text by making a couple of observations. Two observations about what it means to live in light of the end of all things. And so we're going to start in verse 7, the first observation from the beginning of verse 7, where Peter writes just simply, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And, and the first observation there is, is this, that the future consummation of God's kingdom calls for clear-minded sobriety in the present. That's a word we don't use a lot in our culture or demonstrate a lot, but the future consummation of God's kingdom calls for clear-minded sobriety in the present. I believe what Peter wants is for us to see the biblical vision of the future that reshapes our mindset in the present. That this is not something just far off that we wait for, but it's something that we grab hold of, bring into our daily lives today. The main reminder in the passage is that the end of all things is at hand. And that fact shapes everything else in the passage. Everything else in the passage is derived from and dependent on that fact, that the end of all things is at hand. That's why it says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, right? It's drawing out that the two commands there flow from that reminder. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I want to talk about what those words mean, not only in, in English because uh, they're, very, they're very similar in Greek. It's, it's really hard to differentiate, differentiate them. In fact, the, 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 the words really are saying the same thing, two words to mean the same thing. We'll get to that in a moment. But what does it mean exactly before we skip to being self-controlled and sober-minded? What does it mean exactly that the end of all things is at hand? I want to drill down into that. Peter thinks it's important. Now, I've already tipped you off. It has something to do with the return of Christ, but I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it can be taken a couple of different ways. First, the way most people probably take it on first glance, and the way that I probably take it on first glance, is just to say the end of all things is at hand, just assumes this is a reference to the passing of time. In other words, it's a chronological reference. It's another way of just saying, hey, the time is short. There's not much time until Jesus returns. And that's true. That's biblical. The return of Christ could come at any time, and so our time is short. And, and actually, since Peter wrote this, it's nearly 2,000 years shorter. Right? Any time the Lord could return. 
But I don't think his focus is so much on the passing of time as a chronological marker. The, the Greek word for end can also mean the end goal of something. The end goal of all things is at hand. I think that is the meaning that Peter's trying to communicate most of all. He means God is about to wrap up his redemptive plan and, and bring the goal of all of his work over thousands of years to completion when Christ returns. Remember that Jesus came preaching, as it says in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the same thing. It's at hand. Because the king... The kingdom is, is present whenever the king is present. And so in his first coming, Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom. Of course, he surprisingly went to the cross and died for our sins and then ascended to heaven. And now we're just about, Peter says, at the threshold of his second coming. And God is about to bring the, the final consummation of his kingdom. The end of all things is at hand. The, the goal of God's big story is at hand. It's not just a reference to the short time we have left until Christ returns. It's the wrapping up of the big story that God is composing. Peter's hopping to the end of the story, to the, to the end goal. We know that the Bible itself is, is revelation from God. It's His very Word. And it's the record of God's big story. And, and the story of the Bible can be Summarized by just four chapters, right? Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It's what we rehearse every Sunday together. That in the beginning, God created all things, including us, human beings, in His image so that we might live in relationship with Him, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. He made a garden. He put a man and a woman there so that He could dwell among His people, even though it was just the two of them. That's what God was doing, dwelling with His people in God's place. But tragically, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelled against God. They brought sin and death into the human race and human experience, severing the relationship that we were meant to have with God. We call that the fall. And ever since the fall of Genesis chapter 3, God has worked His divine plan of redemption to save a people for Himself. He called Abraham, and He gave promises to him and all his descendants. They became the nation of Israel. He gave the nation of Israel the law so that He could show us our failings, our guilt, but not remove that guilt through the law. Out of the nation of Israel came the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, God's Son, become flesh. He lived the perfect life that we Never could. He died on a cross to pay the penalty that we owe for our sin, a just penalty, a penalty that we deserve. He redeemed us by His blood to restore us to God, to give us eternal life. We will just trust in Him alone for salvation. And if we believe in Him, we can be sure of our hope in Christ because we can look back and see He's already raised from the dead. We can look back and know if God is able to raise him from the dead, then God is able to bring his plan to completion. And that's, that's what Peter's looking forward to is the, the consummation of the story. A goal. God dwelling again with his redeemed people to the praise of his glorious grace, as it says in Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
And so this is what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. He means that the return of Christ to bring God's kingdom to its fullness is the very last step in God's plan. And that's all that needs to happen for everything to be complete. The second coming of Christ will bring the culmination of God's kingdom. It will make all things right, make all things new. God will once again dwell with his people with all who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, I know most of you know that. But listen, I I believe Christians grow best when they are consistently reminded of Christ's return in order to develop an eternal perspective on life. It's my pastoral observation that previous generations of Christians, I think, used to talk more consistently to focus more consistently on Christ's return. Sometimes that went sideways in how they approached things, how they talked about it, the, the, the things they chose to focus on. But I think if you look back in previous generations and, and read books of theology and, and see what was preached, that that will hold true. I wonder, have you noticed those who are old enough to notice in recent decades that the second coming of Christ seems to have maybe taken a little bit of a back seat in our minds and in Christian doctrine, perhaps minimized at times. And, and I don't think it's coincidence that that maybe has coincided with getting more comfortable in our standard of living. Things have improved. We're not longing for that as much as we used to. In the past couple of years, maybe being an exception, I think our focus on the hope of Christ's return has perhaps become less prominent. So I've been really uh, thankful, grateful for Pastor Ken's preaching through the book of Revelation these last months because it's given us as a church a chance to have a prolonged season of reflection on the end of all things. I'm sure it's Pastor Ken, the other elders, it would be my desire that we as a church don't see the sign of the preaching of the book of Revelation wrap it up here in a couple of months, and then just keep driving on as nothing changed. What the Apostle Peter wants to remind us of is that what is ushered in after Christ's return, which could be any time, is the goal that God is bringing about. The previous verses to our chapter, I'm not going to read them right now, verses 1 to 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4, focused largely on the judgment that is to come. So it's not all just a positive, you know, rainbows and butterflies, Jesus is going to return. There's a judgment coming. To judge people who have rejected Him by their sin. That judgment is just. Christian, Rejoice that you have escaped that judgment, but remember it is not of your own merit, but of Christ's. Because of God's grace. For those of us who are saved, the coming judgment and reward to come should now move us to live differently in light of the return of Jesus and the consummation of salvation in glory. The Lord's return and final kingdom is our hope as believers. And this is the perspective I think Peter wants us to grab onto and bring into our lives to change our mindset of how we live, especially in contrast to the pagan Gentiles that he discussed in the first six verses of this chapter. 
They're filled with debauchery and dissipation. But by God's grace, we as Christians have apprehended Christ by faith, and we've spiritually perceived that we are in the last days, as the New Testament calls them. The last days were inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus, and we are in the last days, the final chapter of God's stories. His kingdom is already here, but not yet fully, right? There's an already and not yet to, to these last days. We should be eagerly awaiting with anticipation for the other shoe to drop. For Jesus to come back to rule and reign, to raise all those dead in Christ, changing believers who remain alive in the blink of an eye. These are things that Peter expects us to believe. To be gripped by in mind and heart. And so often we're indifferent to it. Focused on so many other things. Are you driving down the road of life when you see that reminder, Jesus is coming, but your mind and heart is really captured by something else? Peter reminds us this morning about the end of all things for a certain reason. He wants to see a mindset take root in us where, where he says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Something that we as Americans are not very good at. But the logic here is this. If we've truly believed and perceived through biblical revelation in God's Spirit that the end of all things is at hand, then we will realize the futility of living like those in the world, grasping on things that are passing away. Our spiritual perception of the future that God is affecting will, will make us more and more clear-minded and sober, living in light of that future. I, I mentioned those two words, self-controlled and, and sober-minded, as the ESV translation puts it. They really form one idea. The, the Greek word for self-controlled means clear-minded, sensible, using sound judgment. Sober-minded could be looked at as the opposite of drunk, right? We're familiar with that kind of sobriety, but the opposite of drunk, not, not physically, but, but metaphorically, spiritual drunkenness. It means to be alert, to not be dulled in our senses. And while those words are similar, they, they communicate one idea, what I'm going to call clear-minded sobriety. To see a clear picture of the, the vision of the future that God is bringing about and to live in light of it with clear-minded sobriety. That does not mean sad. That does not mean somber, you know, skul skulking around because I'm so, so, I'm so full of sobriety. What it means is seriously engaged, having a sharp mind and focus. Or as Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 3, I think it looks like living for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so how do we cultivate that? He says to do it. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. How do we cultivate that clear-minded sobriety Peter commands us to have? Mainly, brothers and sisters, I think it's by way of reminder, like the sign on the side of the road, and paying attention Peter says that's what he's doing in his second letter. He says he writes them by way of reminder. So Christian, remind yourself. 
Remind the other believers around you in our body to keep our eyes focused on the ultimate reality that is certainly coming because Christ walked out of the grave. Don't be satisfied with just making it day to day and fulfilling earthly desires and passions that only last for a moment. Keep your mind trained on the gospel, on our future hope, on the consummation of the redemptive story God is unfurling through the ages. Some of you are familiar with Richard Baxter, a well-known Puritan pastor in England in the 1600s. I think he was both well-practiced at this, and he wrote about this kind of clear-minded sobriety. I would say he modeled it well in his own life. So I just want you to listen to even just the, the subtitle of part four of a treatise that he wrote that touched on the subject. The, the little book he called, I mean, it's not that little, the book was called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And this is the subtitle for part four of that treatise. The subtitle is The Saints' Everlasting Rest, the fourth part, subtitle, containing a directory for the getting and keeping of the heart in heaven by the diligent practice of that excellent unknown duty of heavenly meditation, being the main thing intended by the author in the writing of this book into which all the rest is but subservient. That's a subtitle, right? Just from that subtitle, you can tell he's a sober-minded Christian. And here's what Richard Baxter practiced and what he commended to his fellow believers in that book more than 370 years ago. He wrote, it's a little bit old English, but track with it. This is what he wrote. He said, the sum is this. As thou makest conscience of praying daily, so do thou of the acting of thy graces in meditation, and more especially in meditating on the joys of heaven. To this end, set apart one hour or half an hour every day, wherein thou mayst lie aside all worldly thoughts, and with all possible seriousness and reverence, as if thou wert going to speak with God himself, or to have a sight of Christ, or of that blessed place. Now, I'm not even going to pretend that I've read even like 10% of the works of Richard Baxter, because there are volumes and volumes and volumes on his, of his writings, but that little excerpt shows a roadmap of sorts for the, for the developing of the kind of serious, clear-minded, sober attitude that Peter commands us to adopt in light of the end of all things being at hand. We need to meditate on the joys of heaven, of dwelling with God again. We need to meditate through the scriptures, which is exactly what Peter commands us earlier in his first letter. Same topic, chapter 1. You can turn there if you'd like, but 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, Peter's talking about the salvation he's been speaking about in the Lord and where it came from. He said, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired prophets who prophesied about what was to come, and they were searching, trying to figure out, when is this going to happen? How is this going to come about? But it wasn't for them, it was for us. Spirit was indicating 
things to them when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And, and in our topic this morning is those subsequent glories, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming again, the end goal of all things, the consummation of the kingdom. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, those prophets, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I love that end of that verse. Things in which angels long to look. And I drive by, metaphorically, and sometimes physically, the sign that says Jesus is coming and I keep on driving. These are things in which angels long to look. Peter immediately, just the very next verse, after laying out that the scriptures have revealed both the sufferings of Christ and his resurrection and future reign, those future subsequent glories, immediately after that, Peter commends us and commands us to do exactly what Richard Baxter commended to his generation. So, so verse 13 of chapter 1 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. That's the, the same word in our passage in chapter 4. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not sometimes set your hope there. Not partially set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the mindset Peter is commanding us. And that idea of being sober-minded and setting our hope fully on the grace to come is in direct contrast to the world's perception and practices that Peter talked about in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. So we'll turn there now. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This is how he sets up what's in our passage. The time has passed Suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The world has exactly the opposite perspective of what Peter's calling us to. The world says, this is all there is. Look around, grab all you can, this is all there is. The focus is on the here and now. It leads to all manner, as I said, of debauchery and dissipation, pursuing whatever feels good, whatever satisfies the basest desires of the flesh. The Bible tells us, reminds us, even Christians, we too once lived this way. It may not be the exact list of sins in chapter 4, 1 through 6, but we were all once ruled by our passions before coming to Christ. We are all still tempted to go to that path again, go back to the well of that debauchery, of those passions, to functionally live as if this is all there is. And so when Peter calls us to clear-minded sobriety, based on rightly perceiving the ultimate reality of God's redemptive plan, what he's actually calling us to be is an alternative, counter 
cultural community that lives in light of the hope of the gospel and shines that light into the darkness all around us. Because here's the connection. It is the hope of the gospel, the coming consummation, it's the hope of the gospel that frees us from living as if we need to squeeze every last drop of fleshly pleasure out of this life. Christ actually offers us a greater, a longer lasting pleasure and joy that we will experience after the consummation of his kingdom, after the end of all things. We get little tastes of it now in fellowship with God and one another, but it's coming. Peter calls us to align ourselves with God's eternal perspective rather than just living for the moment, and this is extremely countercultural. That leads me to the, the second observation about living in light of the end of all things, and that is that clear-minded sobriety results in the countercultural priorities of prayer and love for one another. Clear-minded sobriety results in the countercultural priorities of prayer and love for one another. Let's read the passage again and we'll see how that it's worked out. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. That's, that's the two commands, the two twin commands in this passage, the only commands. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So one important priority of living with clear-minded sobriety is purposeful prayer. That's what it says at the end of verse 7. Translated literally, it would be, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for prayers. And the purpose is supplied in our English standard for, for the sake of your prayers. In light of the end being near, first of all, we pray. We don't want to take that for granted. We should pray. Secondly, when we have the perspective that Peter's calling us to, we can pray more focused prayers that are effective and in line with God's will. They're purposeful prayers. This makes no sense to the world. Right? You go to a private place, perhaps, and you speak to the ceiling? What, what are you doing? <laughs> what is that? But purposeful prayers made possible by a mindset shaped by the gospel and the future hope that flows from it. A mindset shaped by focusing on the imminent consummation of God's plan. It's really God-centered prayer. It's not just what we so often call prayer, which is making like a laundry list of things that we would like and then asking God to provide those. Now, God wants to hear what, what you need. And we're told several times in the New Testament, He already knows what you need. He still wants you to tell Him. But if that's all our prayer life is, that is not what Peter's talking about. This is God-centered prayer. Prayer with a purpose, shaped by keeping a focus 
on where we are in redemptive history and what's coming just around the next bend. If you think of prayer like that, what, what would you pray for? Effective and powerful prayer doesn't just happen. It takes discipline. It takes clear-minded sobriety, mental focus. If you're occupied with other things in the forefront of your mind and your heart, you very well may miss out on the kind of prayer life God means us to have. Think about it this way. Jesus taught us to pray along these lines in the Lord's Prayer, just the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 to 10. He said, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be revered. That's his first and biggest prayer. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to be honest, I never thought about it till this week, about seeing the Lord's Prayer this way. That is countercultural prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I say it's countercultural, partially because there's a weightiness to it, partially because it's an understanding of God that is not common in our culture, that we need God, that we need Him to act, that we need Him to work, that we need Him to bring resources and power to change the world, to redeem and save people out of judgment. But more than that, it's countercultural because we're asking God's will to be done on earth. The request is to see real change and transformation come to our lives, our neighbors, our friends, our workplaces, our schools, our nations, our earth. That's a countercultural prayer no matter when you pray it, no matter where you pray it. Because it's prayer against the fallen order and sinful rebellion that characterizes every human culture, every human heart. And it is a prayer for God to change things, for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. By and large, that's change that gets affected by the spread of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the hearts of sinners and then ultimately at the return of Christ to bring the consummation. But we got to pray purposefully, soberly, to see God's will done on earth as it is done in heaven. Every great revival in church history began with sober-minded, purposeful prayer. And so I would commend us to pray. Pray by yourself. Pray with your family. Pray alone, in small groups, all throughout the day, set times aside. Pray and ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one countercultural priority. There's a second one in, in verse 8, a second priority that flows from clear-minded sobriety, and that is a certain kind of love. This is the time of year where we think about love. Husbands, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Don't forget, you can thank me later in private. But let's think about how to love one another in the body of Christ this Valentine's Day. Not just tomorrow, but just that's the time of year we're in. Look at verse 8. Above all. Okay, so he's talked about a lot of important things. Above all. That's a, a marker of high priority. 
Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He says earnestly. What he's talking about is a persistent, committed type of love that is not common in our culture and unfortunately is not all that common in the church. The command to love one another may seem oddly linked to the topic of clear-minded sobriety, so, that, so much so that many commentators say it's a separate topic that Peter's moving on to, but I don't think it's a separate com- topic or a command. Grammatically, at least, it's, it's modifying, it's related to being self-controlled and sober-minded, kind of becoming part and parcel of, of those two commands. And I think the logic is this. In contrast to the selfishness of the Gentiles, of of the culture around us. In contrast to that, which he's just talked about in verses 1 to 6, those who have their minds set on earthly pleasures, we as believers are to have our minds set on the hope to come at Christ's coming, the goal of all things, and are free to focus on loving others instead of only ourselves. So what does a self-controlled and sober-minded life really look like? Well, there's a priority of purposeful prayer, then there's a priority of earnestly loving one another, I think primarily in the local church, but loving the body of Christ, all who believe, in contrast to leading an individualistic, selfish existence. It's a call away from that, a call away from individualism, a call away from self-indulgence, and toward a life committed to loving the faith community that is centered around Christ and the gospel. Peter says here that love covers a multitude of sins. Not in the sense of forgiveness, only Jesus covers our sin. What he means is, through, through an allusion to Proverbs 10, 12, what he means is where love is earnest, where love is committed, where love is persistent, people are not going to be easily offended. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, they're going to hope all things and believe all things, right? They're going to give the benefit of the doubt. They're not going to hold grudges. It's going to be a community bound together in in that kind of love rather than splintering off every time someone sins against their brother and sister. And if you have not been sinned against in the church, just wait. (laughs) It will happen. No church is perfect. Every church will fail you in some way. There may even be out right conflict at times, but Peter means that in light of our shared future in Christ, love bears a multitude of sins because ultimately we recognize the love of Jesus covers all of our sins. I'm not just a redeemed person, I'm part of a redeemed people. The blood of Christ was shed for you as much as it was for me. I think we're supposed to have the kind of love that is defined by Paul Tripp, author you're probably familiar with, he he writes that love according to the Bible really means this. He says, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Does that sound countercultural? I love you even though you can't love me back. That would be demanding reciprocation. I love you even if you're not deserving. This is the kind of love poured out in our hearts through Christ. It's the kind of love that Jesus shows us. It's the kind of love we ought to show one another, and it's hard. In fact, it can only be done by the the power of the Spirit, the strength God supplies, and a focus 
on the end goal. Because if I'm so wrapped up in what happens here and now, I can't let go. Perhaps there's someone you need to go to and restore a relationship, apologize, give forgiveness. Maybe there's some way that you can practically express love in your base group that you maybe haven't taken up in your Bible study, in our body at large. I think he's largely focused on the local church here. In fact, in verses 9 to 11, he continues by giving a couple examples of the practical expression of love in the body, and it's worked out in a couple of key ways. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without complaining. Let's remember, this was written to exiles, people persecuted, losing jobs, losing homes, being forced out. So at one in the morning, you get a knock on the door because someone in your church just got kicked out of their house. That's inconvenient. How long are they going to stay? Do I have enough to take care of them? I'm trying to feed my own family. But love in Christian community manifests itself in very practical care in the form of hospitality. It could look like that in times of persecution. Quite inconvenient. Hospitality today might be a meal together, a visit, a cup of coffee, or maybe just a listening ear. It's more so about reaching out, helping one another feel like we belong in the body. Every one of you can do it, even if your, quote, gift is not hospitality. Right? We can reach out, we can extend and embrace a welcome, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Next, the practical expression of love in the body and ministry is, is explained in terms of spiritual gifts in serving the church. This can be in an official ministry, right? Maybe someone on the worship team working in youth ministry. Often is not. More often, I would say it's not. It's serving one another using our gifts in relationships. He says in verses 10 to 11, as each has received a gift, so note, Christian, you have a spiritual gift, maybe more than one. We should seek to discover and utilize and bless. Why? Because it's not for you. Look at what he says. Each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, you get to be a channel of God's grace to other people. How great is that? And then he doesn't give an exhaustive list. In fact, it's pretty basic. A couple categories, service gifts, speaking gifts. They're exercised in sobriety and love for one another. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Our words carry weight, and we should speak the word of God to one another. Right? That could be an official teaching capacity, or it could just be encouraging one another with the scriptures. Being that reminder, that encourager that they need. Whoever serves, it says, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. These are spiritual gifts. They come from the Spirit. He means to exercise His power through us. We rely on Him. We ask Him, how do you want me to use this? Where do you want me to use this? When do you want me to use this? We pray and say, empower me to use this for the good of God's people. And until Christ comes, we are to continue to serve one another using the spiritual gifts God's given because we are stewards. We're managers of His grace. And again, every Christian receives a gift. It's not, it's not for you. It's for loving service to others. This is why we have a body, because we can't walk alone. 
And to wrap up here in verse 11, Peter tells us this is all for one ultimate purpose at the end. Kind of wrapping back where we started. What's the end goal of all things? It's that in order that in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our, this is the shape of our lives that Peter wants us to consider. That our lives are to be lived this way until the end comes, by the strength that God supplies, in order that in all things he may be glorified forever and ever. That's not theoretical. It's practical expressions of love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we love each other, that authenticates and lends credibility, might call them plausibility structures, to the claim that we are the true people of God. That we have the only way to be restored to God. The only way to everlasting life with God. The love of Christians in the church should be so earnest, so committed, that it is countercultural and that people are first probably caught off guard by it and then attracted to it. You're probably familiar with Jesus' words in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love has been called the church's ultimate apologetic. It is how we become a countercultural witness in the world and embody the love that God has in Christ. Just the chapter before this, 1 Peter 3.15, Peter said, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So often we read that as an individual thing, someone's watching me, and that's true. They're going to ask the hope I have, but often... It's because they see you with another member or members of the body of Christ and the strange and peculiar love that comes from the Holy Spirit. We are to love each other with an otherworldly love that only flows from the hope that we have in Christ and can't be explained any way else. What kind of love would it be to make people ask us about, why are you like that? What hope that you have that makes you love like that? I'll close with this. In our previous ministry in, in New Mexico, there was an Iranian couple. There was a lot of international students at the university in our city, and, and our church loved to reach out to them. And there was an Iranian couple who were there for their education. They came into contact with some of the folks in our church, and Yvette and I were blessed to befriend them. We became good friends with them. We shared the gospel again and again. I remember sitting out in my backyard at night on a nice evening with this gentleman. I'm not using his name because I don't know if he'll ever go back to Iran and that would be not good for him. <laughs> but I remember sitting there for like two or three hours just talking about the gospel, him asking questions, me probing, asking him to respond. I'm sure that was helpful, but ultimately... It was just one step. Didn't, didn't get him over the finish line to come to faith. But I'll tell you what happened. As he watched the body of Christ and the love that we had one another, he and his wife were so attracted to the relationships. And they could tell it was different from the rest of the people they knew who were not Christians. So much so that 
they ended up moving uh, to another state for, for his wife's education after he finished up. And right before they left, we got together. And one of the last things he asked me was, how do we find Christians when we move? Because we want to find more Christians just like you guys. They felt love. They felt the hospitality. They saw the love we had for one another. And it, it lended credibility to the message. Now, they never did come to Christ through our ministry, through our relationship in, in New Mexico. But about a year later after they moved, we got a text. There was no words. It was just a picture. And at first, we couldn't see what it was. But it was them in a baptistry. In a church. One of the most joyful experiences of my ministry. Didn't expect to cry. <laughs> it is love in the church of Jesus Christ that ultimately shows what God is like to the world. This attracting more people to the truth of the gospel and resulting in more glory to God as they come to faith in Jesus. That is the power of setting your mind on the hope to come, letting the end of all things shape your life with sobriety, with purposeful prayer, with earnest love, a church that is a countercultural force for the gospel. So friends, because the end is near, we must live soberly as a countercultural community for God's glory. Let me pray for us. God, you are so gracious and good to redeem a people like us. We do not deserve your mercy. We do not deserve your grace. We deserve judgment. And Lord, if there are any here who have not responded to your offer of salvation in Christ and they, they stay and stand under your wrath, would you even now, by your Spirit, bring them to faith in Jesus. Help them to see that they are sinners separated from you, that they cannot make themselves better, acceptable, but are instead doomed to a judgment of eternal separation from you. Lord, would you draw them to faith, that they may share in the same hope and inheritance that we all have. And Lord, would you Help every Christian here, by way of reminder, to set our hope fully on the grace to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be living with clear-minded sobriety for the purpose of prayer and the priority of loving one another, that you might get all glory, for you are worthy forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.